The Ford F-150 truck drives smart design forward. The standard 12-inch productivity screen helps you get what you need done too. And the available Pro-Access tailgate improves access to bed and cargo and utilization of the bed, including when towing a trailer. Together with a wider bumper step, it's easier to access the bed and load in tight spaces. An available Pro Power onboard serves as a mobile power source, providing up to 7.2 kilowatts of power to charge a bed full of electric dirt bikes or run an entire job site worth of tools. I'm still driving my 2016 F-150 truck and 90,000 miles in. As long as I keep it clean, it honestly still looks brand new. I've taken it down snow-covered forest service roads, taken it out camping, put a ton of miles on it on the freeway, had five adults in the cabin for long trips, and it's been great everywhere. Super dependable. I still love the way it looks, nice and rugged design, but with a super comfortable interior. And I'm still very happy with the quality sound system and heated seats. And since I bought my 2016 F-150 truck, the list of standard amenities that make a truck feel like a luxury vehicle have only grown. Tough this smart can only be called F-150. Find your local Ford dealer at Ford.com. Pro access tailgate available starting spring 2024. See owner's manual for important operating instructions. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. I recently watched the new fourth season of Black Mirror on Netflix. And if this season has a theme, I'd say it's the concept of digital immortality. Can human consciousness be transferred into digital form? And if so, is this digital version of ourselves as alive as the old carbon-based model. I keep thinking about this possibility because for the first time in human history, it does seem possible. And I'm not the only person who thinks so. We talk a lot about the past here on Time Suck, and we will again here today. But we're also going to talk about the future, a future of very exciting and mind-bending possibilities dissected and discussed today on Time Suck. You're listening to Time Suck. Happy Monday, time suckers, and happy Monday, space lizards. Feels good to say space lizards. Hail Nimrod, praise Bojangles, glory be to Triple M and James Ingram. I'm Dan Cummins, a.k.a. the Suck Wizard, a.k.a. old dirty suck master, a.k.a. uh, he who has sucked the most high, a.k.a. all the incredibly creative titles you time suckers uh, send my way, and uh, you are listening to Time Suck, a recording from the Suck Lair with Reverend Dr. Gentleman Scholar Joshua Carell. Real quick, sorry about last Monday's Idiots of the Intro segment glitch that some of you heard before we re-uploaded the episode. Uh, first time an episode was correct when created uh, and, 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 and kind of put out uh, as a file but then corrupted somehow during the upload process. All this fucking technical wizardry that goes on in our world today. Uh, so weird. Uh, also, another strange tech issue caused the episode not to publish when scheduled, uh, which is the first time that happened. Uh, so clearly Lucifina is fucking with the suck. Uh, taking measures to do our best to prevent that happening again. Thanks for your patience and understanding with that. Uh, huge thanks to those of you who have signed up for the secret suck, man. You should have your new stand-up album, Feel the Heat, uh, now. Uh, download link is on Patreon. If you don't, the first episode of The Secret Suck drops on Thursday, February 8th. 
So you can send in voice messages into the app to be incorporated into that show. Currently, you can send messages uh, up to 30 seconds in length, I believe. Changing that to 60 seconds, and and that change may have already occurred. I'm, I'm recording from the past. Uh, right now, just kind of with the recording schedule. So I'm just hoping all this shit has worked out. Uh, the Secret Suck will drop Thursday, yeah, uh, noon Pacific time. And you should be able to vote on some uh, upcoming topics, tons of topics on there. I want everybody's voice to be heard. Uh, if, if your topic is not on there, if you look in the search bar and don't find it, uh, just be sure and uh, email bojangles at timesuckpodcast.com. Yeah, definitely email not, as opposed to social media for that specifically. And then we can add it. Uh, voting resets on the 16th and 1st of each month. Votes from the first half decide the first Monday episode of next month's uh, you know, Time Sucks. And, and votes for the second half decide the next uh, month's third Monday topic. So control the fate of Time Sucks, Space Lizards. Steer the will of the cult of the curious as you see fit. Uh, more info uh, about all of this at patreon.com slash timesuckpodcast. Uh, link for that in the episode description. And more info at the end of the episode. A couple quick tour announcements and we're off. Uh, thanks to you Chicago suckers for another amazing week. Uh, Zanies, extra thanks to longtime fan, current space lizard Mike Mead for celebrating part of his bachelor's party at the show. Uh, you're the best, Mike, man. I appreciate the awesome support. That's nuts. He did that. Uh, New York City, Gotham Comedy Club this Sunday night, February 11th. Get your lizard ass down there. Uh, Detroit, February 16th at the Magic Bag in Ferndale. Swap cast with the boys James and Jimmy. From Small Town Murder and Crime and Sports, Minneapolis, March 2nd and 3rd at Sisyphus Brewing. More tour dates at www.dancummins.tv. More announcements at the end of the show. Time now for sucking some digital immortality. We take a look at the future today. Is it really possible to transfer our brains into some kind of hard drive? Or is that just the musings of delusional scientists and science fiction authors? Uh, The awareness of our own mortality may be what separates humanity the most from the rest of the animal kingdom. Like, you know, your dog doesn't know it's going to die. You do. And what a terrific burden that knowledge is. You know, some speculate that the fear of death, the not knowing what happens to us when we die, the real, you know, uh, us, not our ever-changing bodies, but our memories, personality, ego, soul. Where does that go? You know, that question may have kicked off numerous religions. Uh, From a non-religious point of view, you know, it it feels sometimes like it may have kicked off all religion. You know, where do we go? That that, that just drives us crazy. Well, uh, what if pretty soon we knew? Now, I know many of you will not feel like this is possible, but there are a lot of other people out there, very educated people, who do feel that not only uh, is it possible, but that it's certain and that it's going to happen fairly soon. So, so let's look into what those smarty pants have to say. Uh, e- even if you don't, based on you know faith and stuff, believe this is even a possibility. I think just the uh, the tech out there working towards some version of this will be very interesting to you. Uh, and first, let's look into how we came to our current understanding of consciousness. Let's look back at how we came to discover you know the that the mind holds the keys to who we really are, and how mapping it, mapping the mind, holds the keys to any chance of our transferring our consciousness into digital form. So let's uh, let's get a little basis for a little mind knowledge with the Time Suck Timeline. Strap on those boots, soldier. We're marching down a Time Suck Timeline. All right, we go way back to 1700 BCE uh, to kick off this timeline. Following up on last week, uh, it seems like the Egyptians were the first culture uh, that we know of to have studied the brain. 
Uh, the ancient pharaohs used to uh, have the top of men's skulls carefully cut up and removed so that the men, usually prisoners of war, uh, who had been you know, tightly bound to a chair, would still be very much alive. And then when the brain was exposed, uh, Egyptian physicians would press on different areas of the brain and then just record what happened. Sometimes the test subject would cry, sometimes laugh, sometimes convulse, other times temporarily lose sight, hearing, even control their bladders and bowels. Uh, one physician, through the study of many subjects, could figure out which part of the brain to touch with a small needle to make people move. A little poke here, an arm moves. A little poke there, the feet move, and so on. He, he actually got so good that the prisoner would be untied, and the physician could control him and basically act as a puppeteer and make his real-life human puppet just like literally dance for the pharaoh. And he was able to teach other physicians of the day how to manipulate the brain in the same way. And they were eventually able to create choreographed routines. Fucking bananas. And one of the routines crafted uh, uh, created in the 8th century BCE was used as the basis for that big dance number in Elizabeth Taylor's 1963 Cleopatra movie, little trivia, uh, when she arrives in Rome in that scene. I mean, can you imagine all those dancers with the tops of their skulls removed? Doctors poking them in the head to make them dance. Like, what the fuck? What an insane show that would be. How crazy is that? be way nuts. If you already knew that, that's incredible because I just made all that shit up. Get out of here. No one was cutting people's heads open and turning them into human puppets. They did study the brain first, though. Not lying about that. Seven, around 1,700. It was so hard to not laugh as I was saying that stuff. Uh, please, please, at least one of you tell me that you that you believed all that until the end. Around 700 uh, BCE, an ancient Egyptian writer used a papyrus. Ha <laughs> ha! Not going to get me two weeks in a row with not knowing how to pronounce me some papyrus. Holy shit that I get some emails for that, as I knew I would and as I deserved. Well, an ancient writer used a papyrus scroll to record medical information uh, regarding 48 individuals suffering from serious injuries. The first known recorded reference to the brain occurs on a papyrus uh, for case number six, a person with a skull fracture translated, in this case, into some funky old English by whatever archaeologist uh, found this bit of papyrus. If thou examinest a man having a gaping wound in his head, penetrating to the bone, smashing his skull, and rending open the brain of his skull, thou shouldst palpate his wound. Shouldst thou find that smash which is in his skull, like those corrugations which form in molten copper, and something therein throbbing and flattering under thy fingers, and he discharges blood from both nostrils, and he suffers with stiffness in his neck. Each medical case offered uh, one of three diagnosing options for each malady their patients were suffering from for these Egyptian uh, physicians. One would be an ailment that I will treat. One would be an ailment that I will try to treat. And, and one would be an ailment that I will not treat. So each injury, you know, they put it into one of those three categories. Given the severity of case number six's uh, head injury and the fact that they only had yeast, honey, and other natural compounds to fucking deal with disease and injuries, the ancient doctor's recommendation was uh, – an ailment not to be treated. So good call, Egyptian doctor. Uh, know your limits. Know your limits, doctors. Uh, so back in ancient Egypt, they might have they might not have known what the brain did, but they at least knew of the brain, knew about that old skull marrow, and uh, you know knew you had to be careful when treating an injury to it. Got to got to start somewhere with a study of the mind. It was the ancient Greeks who, Greeks who were actually believed to have been the first to speculate that the brain uh, might be where our thoughts and personality originate. The ancient Greeks studied the brain beginning in the 5th or 6th century BCE. Uh, Alcmion of uh, Croton was an early Greek medical writer and philosopher scientist and perhaps the first Greek who first considered the brain to be the place where the mind was located. According to ancient Greek authorities, he believed the seat of sensations is in the brain. This contains the governing faculty. All the senses are connected in some way with the brain. Consequently, they are incapable of action if the brain is disturbed. 
The power of the brain to synthesize sensations makes it also the seat of thought. The storing up of perceptions gives memory and belief, and when these are stabilized, you get knowledge. Holy shit. I mean, fucking think about how accurate that is how many years ago. Just, my God, just millennia ago. Man, good old ancient Greece. It is amazing to me. Just consistently, how they seem to understand the way the world worked and the way humans thought, and you know why humans did what they did to a, to a far better degree than than medieval kingdoms would. You know, over a thousand years after their deaths, unbelievable. Uh, so this was re- revolutionary, you know, because a lot of ancient people believe that our thoughts came from our heart, you know, because that's where various emotions were felt, are felt. You know, I'm pretty sure there are still a fair amount of people who believe that emotions come straight from their actual heart. You know, same people who believe that intuition comes from some third eye. Uh, maybe located in their actual gut, you know, people who tirelessly walk across a flat earth inventing answers to life's mysteries as they see fit. Uh, Another old Greek smarty pants son of a bitch, uh, Hippocrates, the father of modern medical ethics, wrote many texts on brain surgery. Born on the Aegean island of uh, Kos in 470 BC, uh, Hippocrates uh, was quite – Hippocrates – God, his fucking name. Hippocrates was quite familiar with the clinical signs of head injuries, and he is the first known person to speculate that the two halves of the brain were capable of independent processing, which he termed mental duality. Uh, Again – uh, amazing that they could uh, understand that you know way back when. Unfortunately, not everyone else agreed with old Hippoc- uh, Hippocrates. Uh, Hippocrates, his fucking name. If I don't look at the exact pronunciation, there's no way I get it. Even really smart people like Aristotle still thought, as I said before, that our thoughts and emotions emanated from the heart. And then the study of the brain essentially didn't advance for centuries. And lots of people went back to thinking that their chest is where their brain was, or that their ego lied in spiritual form only and wasn't attached to their body. Just all kinds of stuff. You know, the the Earth uh, rulers basically hit pause on the world's uh, science button. Not every culture did, but generally speaking, things slowed way, way down because a lot of uh, science was suddenly heresy. Uh, so the dark and middle ages were a rough time for knowledge, uh, scientific knowledge at least in general, and there was a very little advancement in the study of how the mind works in Europe or elsewhere for hundreds and hundreds of years outside of a little bit of brain study done in the Muslim world. Uh, in the 10th century CE, the great Muslim scholar and doctor uh, al-Zarawi, uh, referred to by many as the father of modern surgery, uh, Al-Zawari uh, was born in 936 CE in El, uh, El Zara near Cordoba, Andalusia, southern Spain, and for 50 years served as the court physician to the caliph, the de facto ruler of Muslim Spain. Uh, he left behind a 30-volume encyclopedia of his medical practices known as the Kitab al-Tazrif. Uh, Tazrif, uh, he was the first doctor to leave behind detailed descriptions regarding the surgical procedures for neurological disorders. And then uh, following al-Zahrawi, uh, the exploration into the inner workings of the mind goes basically dark again until the 16th century CE. And why did it go dark again? Well, because no one was getting a good night's sleep. Okay? Back in the Middle Ages, people were sleeping on beds made out of snakes and goblins and fear. Okay, maybe, they, maybe their beds you know, weren't quite that bad. But they sure as hell uh, you know, weren't sleeping on anything made by today's sponsor. Today's Time Suck is brought to you by Lisa Mattresses. Driven by their mission to provide a better place to sleep for everybody, Lisa is an innovative, direct-to-consumer online mattress brand uh, that is also socially conscious. In fact, for every 10 mattresses that Lisa sells, they donate one to a shelter through their 110 program. They also plant one tree for every mattress sold and donate 1% of each employee's time to volunteer for local causes. Not to mention, with the patented universal adaptive feel, Lisa is designed for all types of sleepers and features three Premium foam layers, including 2-inch Avena foam top layer for cooling and breathability. That's my favorite one, right? Keep me cool, I sleep. 2-inch memory foam middle layer for body contouring and pressure relief. 
uh, and six-inch dense core support form uh, foam for durability and structure, uh, which works for sleepers of all sizes. And I will say, you know, I've been uh, using my sleeve mattress for a while now, and it, and it hasn't like flattened at all. It hasn't. Uh, it's it's just as firm as it was, you know, when, when, I, when I first started laying on it, you know, months back. So uh, awesome. So try Lisa mattress in your own home uh, now for a hundred nights risk-free. How cool is that? You know, you don't like it after 60, 90 days? All right, you get to send it back. It's available in the U.S., U.K., Canada, and Germany online with free shipping. This 100% American-made mattress ships compressed in a box right to your door. Or you can try it uh, at the Lisa Dream Gallery in Soho, New York City, and Virginia Beach, and over 80 West Elm stores nationwide. Pick it up there. Right? Get $100 off when you go to lisa.com slash timesuck. lisa.com slash timesuck. And you can try it there. Not, not get it. Excuse me. I misspoke. But yeah, but you definitely get the $100 off when you go to leesa.com slash timesuck. Okay, back to old-timey stiff back-having bastards, uh, back to people not getting a good night's sleep. Let's talk about Andreas Vasuli, uh, Vesalius. Andreas Vesalius, born December 31st, 1514, was a 16th century Flemish anatomist, physician, and author of the one of the most, uh, one of the most influential books of a, on human anatomy, anatomy of all time, On the Fabric of the Human Body. Now, Vesalius is often referred to as the founder or father of modern human anatomy. Uh, he was born in Brussels, which, though now part of uh, Belgium, was then part of the Hasburg, Netherlands. He was a professor at the University of uh, uh, Padua and later became imperial physician at the court of Emperor Charles V. So, you know, he's a big shot. Uh, Andreas uh, was the first physician to properly begin mapping the human brain regarding its anatomy in a way that still holds up today. Born into a well-to-do Brussels family of physicians and pharmacists, many of whom uh, attended royalty, uh, Vesalius studied medicine in Paris uh, when he was 18. His teachers allowed him to assist in their occasional public dissections of executed criminals. Uh, he then continued his studies in uh, Leuven, now in Belgium, where he persuaded the mayor to allow human dissection. Must have been a uh, weird conversation. Just uh, please let me cut up the bodies. Uh, on graduation, he was offered a professorship in anatomy at the University of Padua, uh, Italy, an intellectual hotbed, politically independent of the Pope, where the practice of human dissection was long established. Now, uh, uh, Padua is close to Venice, which was home to important schools of artists, and Vesalius recruited members of uh, Titian's workshop to attend his dissections and provide the exceptional illustrations found throughout his seminal work. Uh, previous to Vesalius, uh, most physicians relied on an anatomical lessons uh, from the teachings of Claudius Galen, a second-century Roman physician whose anatomical teachings had been held as gospel for more than a millennium. Now, Roman law uh, had, had banned uh, Galen, barred him from dissecting humans, so he extrapolated as best he could from animal dissections, and, you know, and often wrongly because their brains are a little different than ours. Some of them. Uh, human dissections were also banned in most of 16th century Europe, so Vesalius traveled to wherever they were allowed. His mission to learn through direct and systematic observation marked the start of a new way of doing science. Also sounds kind of like a creep, right? He was so focused on cadavers. Just moving to, you know, whatever place, you know, happened to let him, you know, have some <laughs> dead bodies just cut up. Just, you know, is, is this where you're keeping the corpses? Yes, yes. How many bodies do you have? Four adults and the baby. That is perfect. Here, put the baby in the sack. I will come back later for the adults. Do you have any redheads? It has been far too long since I looked into the insides of a ginger. They have the softest skin to cut. Thank you so much for the dead bodies. They make me so happy. They make me, they make me so happy. He'd especially be creepy if you, 
if he talked like that. I highly doubt he talked like that, but now that I've done that, I really hope that he did. That he was just a dude cutting up bodies. Just hey, please let me cut up his body. Just like a weird, creepy whisper. Just a weird I like making me so happy. Uh in the seventeenth century, Rene Descartes, uh, born in fifteen ninety six, uh, as a father of Western philosophy man a lot of fathers in this suck man father of this father of that why does everyone have to be the father of something why couldn't be one of the why couldn't one of these sons of bitches been the uncle or cousin or great grandpa you know of something and here we have nathaniel von gutenberg he is the uncle of modern sock puppetry uh, that'd be fun anyway descartes uh, was a famous uh, french philosopher best known for his statement of i think therefore i am uh he's also a mathematician and scientist who studied the brain Right after reading uh, that his famous I Think Therefore I Am, I thought I Think Therefore I Drink, and then I thought I came up with that. I thought I came up with a clever new twist, and then I Googled it and uh, immediately found a ton of T-shirts and coffee mugs that have been made for a long time You know, with that exact phrase. So damn it. I'm so proud of myself for like five seconds. Well, Descartes uh, believed that the pineal gland was the principal seat of the soul and the place in which all of our thoughts were formed. Now, we now know, of course, that study is incorrect. According to a recent Stanford study, the soul is located in the taint. Uh, that mysterious area between the balls and the butthole on dudes, obviously. In women, the taint is located just under the left nipple, uh, just kind of touching, just grazing the areola because there, there's barely enough room between you know your vagina and butthole to fit a peanut M&M, let alone a whole soul. Sorry, uh, was I talking a second ago? I blacked out after I said something about Descartes. I don't know where I was there. Uh, Descartes believed that thoughts originated in the, the pineal gland. Now, the pineal gland is a tiny organ in the center of the brain that produces melatonin. A serotonin-derived hormone which modulates sleep patterns in both circadian and seasonal cycles. The shape of the gland re- resembles a pine cone, hence its name. And Descartes thought it was involved. It was involved, excuse me, in sensation, imagination, memory, causation of bodily movements. You know, and he was wrong about a lot of what he thought about. You know, uh, you know, brain function. However, he was at least trying to figure out what part of the brain did what. And he was right regarding you know various thoughts emanating from some part of the brain. And then uh, the brain, you know, and the study of the brains, uh, excuse me, suffered a huge setback in the 17th century when Rene Descartes, this this French philosopher we've been talking about, was forced to make a deal with the Pope in order to get the bodies he needed for dissection. Man, fuck Pope. Pope agreed on the condition, uh, you know, agreed to let him have bodies on the condition that Descartes would not draw any conclusions on anything to do with his soul, mind, or emotions. Those were seen as the realm of the church. So, you know, cut up some brains if you want. But you tell anyone that the brain is where our consciousness is stored, and off to the fucking rack you go. Off to the off to the gallows, off to the guillotine, whatever they were doing at that time. Party pooping Pope, man, shitting on the brain party. Holding up some science, damn it. We could already be robots now if it wasn't for that one Pope. Uh, I don't know about that, actually. Uh, unfortunately, I do know that this, this agreement uh, set the tone for Western science for the next two centuries, dividing the human experience into two distinct and separate spheres that could never overlap. You know, there's the mysterious mind-soul identity sphere, and then there's the old meat sack sphere, the old body where the old brain happens to be stored in. Uh, and then things got real weird in the field of brain study. In 1808, Franz Joseph Gall, a German anatomist, uh, founded the science of phrenology. Now, this holds that a person's character can be determined by reading the configurations of bumps on somebody's head. Seriously. Uh, like bumps on the skull. I know this sounds as crazy as the taint theory I made up earlier, but this one actually happened. And as peculiar as this theory may seem, it was widely accepted at the time. That is bananas. Can you imagine like hiring somebody just just based on the shape of their head? 
Hello, shareholders. I've finally decided who to hire as a head of our financial division. They'll oversee the ledgers for the entire corporation. We will surely crumble if I put the financial future of this great company into the hands of a fool. As you know, I've recently narrowed my decision to two finalists. I'd been considering Jonathan Weatherby III, Esquire. He has a proven understanding of both mathematics and economic theory and principles. He has 20 years' experience, bachelor's from Harvard, master's from Princeton, Ph.D. from Oxford. However, his head is... How do I say this? It's a bit small and a little little bit lumpy for my taste, and it uh, gave me pause. So I took another look at the other leading candidate, Scoots McGee from Browns Mill, New Jersey. Scoots is a a piney, whatever that means. He tried to explain it to me with some sort of jig and some sort of musical ditty. Just, looky here now, I got some puke, tastiest puke I ever did lick out of my woman's beard. I found the song as disturbing as I did Scoots' overall resume. He's never spent a day in school, and when I asked him what 2 plus 3 equals, he said orange. When I explained to him that neither a fruit nor a color is a mathematical answer, he spit on the floor and tried to fight me. He smells positively wretched, and even though he's only 21, or perhaps 40, he doesn't actually know how old he is, he's already routed out all but one tooth, informing me he lives on nothing but moonshine and cotton candy, elephant ears, and other carny-type food. However, you'll be pleased to hear that he has the smoothest, most perfectly round skull I've ever laid eyes on. Not a single lump on that impeccable backwoods noggin. Uncannily symmetrical. So I've decided it's time we hand him the keys to the castle. Ladies and gentlemen, I present to you Scoots McGee, head of finance. Scoot, get, get Scoots in here. Put some clothes on him. Tell him we can't have our new head of finance masturbating in the lobby, for God's sake. Especially while making direct eye contact with the receptionist. But seriously, phrenology is bananas. At the height of the phrenology craze, some people suggested that politicians should be chosen based on the shape of their skulls. Yep. While others claim to be able to detect signs of latent or latent, excuse me, delinquency in children based on bumps on their heads. Just like literally feel some kid's head. Just be like, oh yes, he's going to be a problem in a few years. Uh, you'll be happy to know this practice has been completely discredited. Although I'm sure a few wackadoodles still believe it. Uh, all that being said, Gall was a pioneer in exploring the concept of localized brain function, uh, function which is how the brain works. And then in 1848, the study of the brain took a great leap forward with a curious case of uh, Phineas Gage. Now, Gage, 25, was a foreman of a crew cut in railroad, a railroad bed in Cavendish, Vermont. And on September 13, 1848, as he was using a tamping iron to pack explosive powder into a hole, the powder detonated. And the tamping iron, 43 inches long, uh, one and a quarter inches in diameter, and weighing 13 and a quarter pounds, shot skyward penetrated Gage's left cheek, ripped into his brain, and exited through his skull, landing several dozen feet away. Now, though blinded in his left eye, he might not even have lost consciousness when this happened, and he remained savvy enough to tell a doctor that day, here is business enough for you. Unreal. Can you imagine having a giant metal bar shoot clear through your fucking head and then then be conscious and just talking about it a little bit later with a doctor? You know, you not even lose consciousness. Like, I wonder if part of you would feel like you're indestructible. Some immortal just Highlander, you know, just don't worry about my eye, doctor. I'm sure it'll grow back. I'm a new species, an immortal. Go ahead, doctor. Set me on fire. Put a sword to my chest. You cannot kill Phineas. <coughs> ah, I do not, actually, I don't, I, don't, I don't feel too good. Yeah, uh, I, uh, I, I have a giant hole in my head. I'm, I'm going to need all of your laudanum. All of it. All of it. Whiskey. Laudanum. No salt, please. Uh, I, I remember watching a PBS documentary on this dude as I was a kid. Maybe it's like a Ripley's Believe It or Not episode. But I, I watched some kind of dramatic reenactment show about this guy when I was like 9 or 10. Oh, man, this 19th century dude just getting a piece of rebar, essentially, just fucking shot through his skull. Like, it's, it's unbelievable. 
went clear through his head, a huge piece of metal. And then he just, you know, he's up and around. Uh, well, Phineas's name was etched into history by observations made by John Harlow, the doctor who treated him for a few months afterwards. Now, Gage's friends found him no longer Gage, Harlow wrote. The balance between his intellectual faculties and animal propensities seemed gone. He would not stick to plans, uttered the grossest profanity, and showed little deference for his fellows. Now, the railroad construction company that employed him, which had thought him to be a model foreman be before the accident, refused to take him back because of his new temperament. Uh, so Gage went to work at a stable in New Hampshire, drove coaches in Chile, South America randomly, and, and then eventually joined relatives in San Francisco where he died in May 1860 at age 36 after a series of seizures. Yeah, yeah, fuck, I bet he had some seizures. Can't believe he lived for another 11 years. Uh, there's also a lot of reports around Gage that he did eventually uh, go back to his hardworking self, you know, after the accident, and that his personality shift was not permanent. You know, he in time allegedly regained some of his earlier, better kind of temperamental qualities. Well, this famous case, now found in countless neuroscience textbooks, was an important mile milestone in the study of the brain's anatomy because it suggested that important parts of the personality reside in the frontal lobe. Now, these findings indirectly led to the development of the procedure called lobotomy, which you time suckers are familiar with, uh, which, you know, based on the theory of the removal of portions of the frontal lobe, which could cure mental derangement and depression. Poor Gage, man. He paved the way for old Dr. Ice Pick McBrainstabber. Hold, hold still. I'm just trying to heal you. Just going to put a little ice pick in your brain. Poor dude. Can you imagine having a piece of rebar shot through your brain? I just can't. Uh, can you imagine having anything shoot through your brain? And still having enough brain left over to think about what had just happened to you? Even if it didn't damage your brain, wouldn't you just assume it did on some level? I would. Like, even if my brain was no different than it was before, I, I, I'd at the very least blame my mistakes going forward on that accident uh, for the rest of my life. You know, just, yeah, you're right, baby. Yeah, it's terrible. I forgot your birthday. I, you know, I probably would have remembered a couple years ago. I probably would have went really big and done something awesome for you. But then, you know, uh, in case you forgot, I had a giant piece of fucking metal shot through my head. So sorry, I forgot your birthday. Sorry, I didn't put my dirty clothes in the laundry hamper yesterday. I've been a little distracted thinking about the hole in my skull where more of my brain should be. I'd milk that for everything it's worth. In 1872, a little more advancement in the study of the mind. Charles Darwin publishes uh, his book, The Expression of the Emotions in Man and Animals, in which he traces the origins of emotional responses and facial expressions in humans and animals, making note of striking similarities between species. Uh, later... In, an, in another unpublished notebook, Darwin drew some wieners. Uh, he drew about 400 pictures of wieners. But we're not here to talk about that notebook. Uh, in, a, in a different unpublished notebook that's real, Darwin proposes a theory that blushing is a clear indication of consciousness. Uh, he notes that of all the animals, only humans blush and claims this is because they're the only ones capable of self-consciously imagining what others are thinking of them because of the way our brains work. Uh, 19th century American humorist Mark Twain actually has a great line about this. He says, man is the only animal that blushes or needs to. That is a beautiful pair of sentences right there uh, comedically. Uh, well, while we may uh, be the only animals that blush, I don't think we're the only animals to get embarrassed personally. Uh, this is just a conjecture on my part. But, you know, like my dog Penny, Penny Poops, Penny Pooperton, definitely seems to get embarrassed. In high school, uh, I had a different dog, Lacey, a little Cocker Spaniel. I, I gave my dog Lacey a terrible haircut once. Uh, tried to give her a flat top looking situation uh, that I shouldn't have been allowed to, to have done. <laughs> it looked ridiculous. I basically trimmed all of her hair except for I left the hair on top of her head uh, untrimmed and then tried to mold that into like a square kind of looking thing. So she would look like a <laughs> like an army <laughs> like an army drill sergeant but in Cocker Spaniel form. And she looked so ridiculous and she seemed humiliated. <laughs> she, she slinked around for probably a good two weeks. 
but who knows? Maybe she wasn't actually uh, embarrassed in the way that we think of it. Maybe I'm just projecting, you know, my my human emotions upon her. Uh, I'm not sure. Uh, in 1900, Sigmund Freud delves into the study of the mind and consciousness and publishes The Interpretation of Dreams. His central theory is that the unconscious mind drives much of human behavior, uh, behavior, even though civilized society stresses the importance of overriding primitive impulses with morality and reason. Yet this constant tension between a person's repressed drives and his expected social actions often cause psychological distress. Freud suggested that you know one of the ways this tension was resolved is, is through the fantasy world of dreams. And though uh, through psychoanalysis or dream work, patients are able to uncover the unconscious wishes or motives that lie behind a particular dream and gain a greater understanding of themselves. Now, that is generally not accepted at all anymore, but it is accepted that dreams, like all thought, do originate in the mind. So again, we're just you know getting a little bit further, a little bit further as the years go on in our understanding of consciousness in the mind. In 1929, Hans Berger uh, develops the electroencephograph an instrument for recording the electrical, activi- electrical activity in the brain. Doctors now know for certain that electrical activity does exist in the mind. Commonly known as the EEG or brainwave test, Berger's invention is now routinely used as a diagnostic test in neurology, psychiatry, and brain research. 1936, Walter Freeman and James Watts performed the first, uh, perform the first lobotomy in America. The procedure involves, you know, severing the connections between the prefrontal, prefrontal cortex and the rest of the brain. It's designed to alleviate the symptoms of depression and other psychological disorders and becomes an established procedure. Unfortunately, uh, although some patients show signs of improvement, many also suffer from profound personality changes just like Phineas Gage did after his accident in 1848. Just, damn it, Dr. Ice Pick McBrain get the hell away from me. Uh, 1950. Neurological researcher Carl Spencer Lashley undertakes a series of experiments designed to identify the neural components of memory. He systematically removes – this is so horrific, but it's how I guess we learn stuff. He systematically removes different percentages – or he removed – uh, different percentages of rats' brains. And then he would test them in mazes you know, that they had ran many times before. And you know, the result was it was a gradual but consistent decline in their ability to remember the twists and turns out of the mix. Yeah, fuck. Yeah, I bet it was. I bet as, as they had less and less brain – that the maze got harder and harder for them to complete. That's, I know I'm laughing, but even though it's a rat and some people don't care about rats, that is, that is, it's, it's so much out of, like, so out of a horror show if you really let your brain go there. Oh my God. Uh, from these findings, though, Lashley concluded that, you know, that there is no singular site for memory in the brain, but rather it's a holistic process made up of the sum of many neural connections. Man, what if, what if we find out someday that rats are actually complex emotional creatures, extremely aware of their environment and mortality? Think, think about all the shit humans have done to them. Oh, so many experiments. Hopefully that's not true. I don't think it's true. Uh, during the 1980s, a number of researchers began to associate the neurological findings of researchers with psychological models of temperament based on the work, work of Carl Jung. Uh, the resultant plethora uh, of psychometric tools and models that have emerged from this research uh, have proven that a person's neurological dominance forms the foundation of their personality. Uh, in 2001, Russian brain researcher Dr. Elk, Elkanen uh, Goldberg published The Executive Brain. Uh, a book that summarizes his research uh, into the role of the prefrontal cortex. He dismissed the widely held view that the brain consisted of a multitude of separate nodes, each dedicated to specific and discrete cognitive functions. Each dedicated, uh, instead, he argued, excuse me, that the regions of the brain work collaboratively to form a cognitive continuum with the prefrontal cortex, providing the organization in much the same way as a conductor controls an orchestra. Man, our brains are so complicated, and, and we're still learning so much. Dr. Goldberg founded the uh, Luria Neuroscience Institute, an organization founded with the purpose of advancing research and disseminating knowledge about the brain and about the mind. 
doing some important brain research. Man, Russia has come a long way since the days of Rasputin and Stalin. Yeah, a long ways. Uh, you can now even shop online in Russia. Do you know that? I know this is extremely patronizing to people living in Russia. You, you don't have to wear communist peasant rags anymore. You don't have to wear stale bread. No more stale bread. You can shop, uh, you know, places like Bombfell. Okay, that's right. Today's Time Suck is also brought to you by Bombfell. Um, yeah, do you hate going shopping, but you, but you still want to look good? Well, you know, Bombfell is an easier way for men to get better clothes. You simply sign up and you tell your stylist what you'd like to order. Then your stylist, you know, will handpick pieces just for you and email you the selections. You'll have 48 hours to make any changes, even cancel them uh, altogether. Once you receive the clothes, you have seven days to decide what you want to keep, return the rest. Shipping is free both ways. In each shipment, the, the more, you know, uh, you keep, the more you actually get to save, which is, you know, awesome. You keep four-plus items, you know, you get 20% off. You keep three-plus items, you get 15% off. Get two-plus items, you get 10% off. Keep more, get more. Okay, the whole process is completely flexible. Receive clothes when you want. Pause, cancel, anytime. My bombfell stylist, Jasmine, hooked me up with some of the best jeans I've ever worn. Some big star archetype jeans. Uh, stylish, but they're not too hipster for my meaty man thighs. Okay, I got them months ago, and I wear them a few times a week. They're my go-to show jeans on stage now, and they look like they did when I first got them, you know, even though they've been washed, uh, I don't know, once. No, I wash my jeans way more than that. They've been washed many times, and they look great. And for you uh, time suckers, Bombfell has a special offer just for you. Just go to bombfell.com slash timesuck. Get 25 bucks off your first purchase. That's Bombfell, B-O-M-B-F-E-L-L.com slash timesuck for $25 off. Bombfell. Open and close. Aha. Uh-huh. You get it, you guys? Open and close. Close. Like uh, as in the clothes you wear, you know, as, as opposed to closing a box. They wrote that joke. Uh, not me. I want to be clear about that. Bombfell. Their jokes may be corny, but their jeans are fucking tight. But like tight in a good way. You know what I'm saying. I'm going to stop now before the Bombfell uh, complains and I fucking never get them again. Okay, in October, but really, they, they're good. They're good. October 7th uh, of last year, 2017, back to the brain advancement, a uh, photo was released showing vessels that transport fluid uh, that is likely crucial to meta- uh, metabolic and inflammatory processes. Until this past fall, no one knew for sure they existed. We're still learning so much about the brain. Doctors have been taught that there are no lymphatic vessels inside the skull. And then some deep purple vessels were seen for the first time in images published by researchers at the U.S. National Institute of Neurological Disorders and Stroke. In the rest of the body, the lymphatic system collects and drains the fluid that bathes our cells. In the process, exporting their waste, it also serves as a conduit for immune cells, which go out into the body looking for adversaries and learning how to distinguish self from other and then travel back to lymph nodes and organs through lymphatic vessels. And doctors just learned that this big system reaches the brain. And this newly discovered connection between the immune system and the brain could lead to breakthroughs in the treatment of diseases with a neurological origin or aspect like multiple sclerosis. The immune system appears to modulate or even underlie many neurologic diseases, and the cells of the central nervous system produce wastes that need to be washed away just like any other metabolically active cells. This discovery should make it possible to study how the brain does that, how it circulates white blood cells, and how these processes may go awry or play a role in aging. All right, and then just a few days ago, another advancement in our understanding of the mind, on January 26, 2018, uh, MIT, you know, the prestigious Massachusetts Institute of Technology, released new findings on having found evidence that the brain's ability to control what it's thinking about relies on low-frequency brain waves known as beta rhythms. 
In a memory task requiring information to be held in working memory for short periods of time, the MIT team found that the brain uses beta waves to consciously switch between different pieces of information. The findings support the researcher's hypothesis. The beta rhythms act as a gate that determines when information held in working memory is either read out or, or cleared out so we can think about something else. There are millions of neurons in the brain. Each neuron produces its own electrical signal. Uh, these you know, combined signals gener generate oscillations known as brain waves, which vary in frequency. In a 2016 study, researchers found that the gamma rhythms are associated with encoding and retrieving sensory information. Or they found, you know, yeah, that, that gamma rhythms are associated with that. Working memory is the sketch pad of consciousness, and it is under our control, is what one researcher said. We choose what to think about. You choose when to clear out working memory and choose when to forget about things. Oh, man, that doesn't feel like I choose. But you, you can hold things in, in, in your mind and wait to make a decision until you have more information. Oh, I can't let my wife hear this episode. She's like, oh, yeah, you're so forgetful, huh? No, you choose to be forgetful. Uh, I'm like, no, I don't fucking. She's like, that was a study said. That's a study you referenced. I'm like, oh, fuck. And then on uh, uh, March 17th, 2038, this is interesting, cognitive researchers found the part of the brain that controls time travel. Pretty incredible. Just read that in the future. Now let's get out of this timeline and talk about the future for real. Good job, soldier. You made it back. Barely. Okay, so I just wanted to show you all a little bit about the history of how we've been narrowing down consciousness. You know, first to the brain, then on to mapping which part of the brain, you know, do what and how the brain functions. You know, it's all uh, pretty new, most information. But clearly you can see how the, the research has been accelerating uh, a lot recently. Right, like we're uh, you know way, way, way farther along. We're century for centuries it stalled, and then even like a hundred years ago, we really didn't know much at all. And now, you know, in the last 10, 20, 30 years, it just keeps ramping up. How much more we know? And, and really, before we do move on, like what do we actually currently know about the brain, just in general? Well, we know that the brain works like a big computer. It processes information that it receives from the senses in the body, sends messages back to the body. Uh, but they can do more than a machine can. You know, humans think and experience emotions with their brain, and, and that is the root of human intelligence. So we know all of that uh, for certain. The human brain is, is roughly the size of two clenched fists, weighs about 1.5 kilograms from the outside. It looks a little bit like a large walnut with folds and crevices. Brain tissue is made up of about 100 billion nerve cells, neurons, and 1 trillion, that's a lot, supporting cells, which stabilize the tissue. And there's various sections of the brain, each with their own functions. You know, there's the cerebrum. It's the largest part of the brain, divided into two hemispheres or halves, the cerebral hemispheres. Areas with the cerebrum control muscle functions, control speech, thought, emotions, reading, writing, learning, etc. Uh, then we have the uh, diencephalon, the interbrain. The diencephalon is centrally located and nearly surrounded by the cerebral hemispheres. It includes a thalamus, hypothalamus, epithalamus. You get the brainstem, the part of the brain that's connected to the spinal cord. The brainstem relays information between the brain, the cerebellum, and the spinal cord, as well as controlling eye movements, facial expressions, right? That's uh, fucking the lizards, the lizard people. That's why they, they blink differently. That's one thing they haven't figured out. You know, they can look like a human, but they just they get the wrong kind of lizard brainstem. And that's how you can, that's how you can spot them, you know, those da damn <laughs> lizard Illuminati. Uh, you got the cerebellum. That's a portion of the brain in the back of the head between the cere uh, cerebrum and the brainstem. The cerebellum controls balance for walking and standing. Other complex motor functions also regulates vital functions like breathing, blood pressure, heartbeat. And that's just a general overview. There are more specific brain functions known by the scientific community, but you know, to go into them in minutia would make it hard to finish this episode because I would fall asleep because it's boring to me at some point. At some point, I get lost in the details. Uh, to get to the point of replicating human consciousness, there is so, so, so much more we have to learn. And some of the scientific community... 
think, you know, truly understanding how to map out the entirety of human consciousness would take centuries if it can be accomplished at all. But but what if we take another giant leap here soon? You know, it feels like we could. Feels like I think it feels like we will. You know, think about how far tech and biotech has come in recent years. Where things that didn't seem, I don't know, probably truly possible to the average person, you know, 50 years ago, we've gone beyond that now. And, you know, it just keeps getting more and more advanced, keeps accelerating how fast we're learning things. You know, like in 2017, uh, that artificial intelligence robot, Sophia, who I talked about way back in Time Suck 10, played a little clip of her talking uh, in that episode of Robots and Artificial Intelligence. She was just granted citizenship in Saudi Arabia. Uh, Google's DeepMind AI taught itself to walk last summer. It's nuts. I watched a video of it. Uh, they have a video of this avatar you know, that they've created, figuring out how to walk on its own in Google's mind. Uh, pretty amazing and funny, actually. Uh, programmers gave this animated stick figure, artificial intelligence, and, and the basic overall body of a human, you know, a biped, and just, you know, told it to use its legs to get from point A to point B and then put all these obstacles in between A and B and then didn't give it any more instructions and then just kind of watched it through trial and error teach itself how to walk. Uh, pretty incredible. Pretty goofy looking, too. Does some real interesting shit with his arms to keep itself going at, at times. Uh, you know, think about that, though. We have computer programs programming themselves now. Uh, the first electric calculator was designed less than 100 years ago by German Konrad Zeus in his parents' living room between 1936 and 1938. Now we got computers teaching themselves how to, like, walk. Uh, and, and, yeah, and it, was, it was only back in 1938 that we had the first calculator, essentially. It was just, it was a Z1. I mean, yeah, you can see, Ab- you know, Abacus, whatever, but get, that's fucking, no, we're not talking about that. We're talking about tech. Uh, it was a Z1, a binary, electrically driven mechanical calculator with limited programmability, uh, reading instructions from punched celluloid film. And, and essentially, you know, again, by today's standards, I can, you know, give all these uh, tech descriptions. It was just a, a calculator. It was a shitty calculator, not even a good one, not even like a Texas Instruments one uh, that took up an entire living room. Uh, and then there was the ENIAC, uh, the Electronic numer- Numerical Integrator and Computer invented by J. Presper Eckert and John Motchley at the University of Pennsylvania. They began construction in 1943, wasn't completed until 1946, occupied about 1,800 square feet, used uh, about 18,000 vacuum tubes, and weighed right around 50 tons. Again, essentially a giant calculator. Uh, it was used by the military to calculate artillery uh, firing tables. For the United States Army's Ballistic Research uh, Laboratory. Now, the ENIAC uh, calculated a trajectory that took a human 20 hours and 30 seconds, you know, which is a 2,400 times you know, increase in speed. But you think about now. You can calculate that online today it, basically instantly, almost instantaneously. You can get an app and do it on your phone. You can probably do it on a shitty flip phone you know, if you're still living in 2003. You know, in 1946, just the ability to do that and do it much slower took up a space bigger than a lot of people's homes. And it was a carefully guarded military secret, you know, that took years to build. Uh, 1964, the first desktop computer, the Programma 101, was unveiled to the public at the New York World's Fair. It was invented by um, Pier Giorgio Pareto, uh, manufactured by Olivetti. About 44,000 Programma uh, 101 computers were sold, each with a price tag of $3,200. And that's back then, you know. You, you, could, you could buy a car for less than that. Uh, $3,200 for, again, a calculator. You weren't playing World of Warcraft. You know, you weren't playing Destiny 2 on it. You know, you didn't have a word processor. And that was just over 50 years ago. It's the first arcade game to really be a precursor to the games of today. In terms of like mass marketing and playability was Pong. That came out in 1972. And it was just two moving lines for paddles. I remember playing it on the Atari 2600. It was two moving lines for paddles bouncing a ball, like a shitty pixelated ball back and forth across the screen. That's it. That's the whole game. 
you know? And we all know how much further games have come since then, you know, in a very short amount of time. Think of the games, you know, we're playing now. I play Madden 18 with my son. It's like watching an actual football game almost. It's unreal. Uh, and by the way, congrats to whoever won the big game yesterday. Uh, I had to record this before the Super Bowl, so I don't know. I don't know who. Uh, the movements of today's game, or today's games, games like Call of Duty, are so fluid and lifelike. It's, it's incredible. Cinematic. And all that, advance, all that advancement in less than 50 years. I mean, and think about other tech advancements that have come in just the last, like, 10 years. You know, like tablet PCs, Apple's iPad. It didn't come out until 2010. Feels like it's been here forever. Tesla's first electric car dropped in 2008. The Mars rover Curiosity landed in 2011. In 2014, Google introduced Google Glass, the first augmented reality project. 2016, Amazon started doing home delivery via unmanned drones. How long until drones just fill our skies with constant deliveries? What, two years? Five Think about how t- uh, tech development just keeps ramping up, right? More advancements coming faster and faster. Exponential growth. Scientists just building on the ideas of their predecessors. And since the previous knowledge keeps getting bigger, the information they're able to build on keeps increasing rapidly in size. Tech advancing in a few months at a rate that used to take years. And as more nations in the world economically stabilize and are able to focus on education, the rate of tech advancement could just further accelerate, right? Especially if we go into AI and computers can just teach themselves, you know, further and further how quickly that could advance with the microprocessors we had. And that's fucking blows my mind. You know, I mean, there's, there also is insane recent advancements in the field of biotech, right? 150 years ago, we still had old timey doctors, you know, just whiskey, laudanum, shaw. Now we're in sci-fi territory. You know, I made a joke on a standup special back in 2010 uh, on crazy with a capital F about wanting to have a robot hand like Luke Skywalker. Now you can have one. I saw a crazy realistic in terms of overall look and movement, robotic hand being developed at the University of Washington's Movement Control Laboratory. It is insane. It reminded me so much of Skywalker's hand. We're so close to having a synthetic hand look just pretty much exactly like a human hand. You know, just now I have a new hand for hating and the old one for loving. That joke. Uh, Check out some other recent advancements uh, through a few clever molecular hacks, which I don't understand at all, uh, using CRISPR technology. Researchers at Columbia University Medical Center have converted a natural bacterial immune system into a microscopic data recorder, laying the groundwork for a new class of technologies that use bacterial cells for everything from uh, disease diagnosis to environmental monitoring. And this, go, this goes back to the uh, Time Suck 33 designer babies, you know, when I finally learned how to pronounce genome, a word I still want to say as genome, just like I want to say Prius or whatever the fuck I was saying last week. Uh, anyway, but such bacteria swallowed by a patient might be able to record the changes they experienced through the whole digestive tract, yielding an unprecedented view of previously inaccessible phenomena, says Harris Wang, assistant professor at the university, uh, uh, excuse me, in the Department of Pathology and Cell Biology and Systems Biology at CUMC and senior author of the new work described in an issue of Science Magazine. What the fuck? Think about that. You know, they can somehow get a little tiny microscopic bacteria uh, to, to record what happens to, you know, to it and it's in your digestive tract and then analyze those findings, report back. Yeah, can you imagine? Do- doctor, what, what, what did the little robot say about my colon? Uh, well, you know, calm down. It's okay. Let's play back the, the voice recording that they made and, and hear directly from them. And then just poop manufacturing on point. Patient should eat less gravy. Remember, donuts, not essential part of food pyramid. Maybe that's how they talk. You don't know. You don't know how they fucking talk. Maybe they can record things. Maybe I don't even understand what's happening. Science. Crazy shit is happening. Uh, A study whose findings were published in in late 2017 showed that scientists have figured out how to turn brain cells into skin cells. 
uh, saying, when cells develop, they differentiate into different organs with varying functions, bone, intestine, brain, and so on, a Tel Aviv researcher named Professor Levy says. Our study proves for the first time that this process is not irreversible. We can turn back the clock and transform a mature cell that already plays a definite role in the body into a cell of a completely different kind. How do they do this shit? I have no idea. Professor Levy goes on to report that the applications of this are endless, from transplants, which would eliminate long waiting lists and eliminate the common problem of immune system rejection of foreign organs, to maybe one day curing deafness, taking any cell in the body and transforming it into you know, uh, melanocytes to aid in the restoration of hearing. The possibilities are really beyond the scope of the imagination, is what he says. Unfucking real. So you know, is the study of the mind eventually and inevitably going to merge with advancements in tech and create true consciousness in digital form? Well, a Princeton uh, neurosurgeon, among others, sure thinks it will. Michael uh, Graziano, uh, yes, Graziano, yes, Michael Graziano is a professor of psychology and neuroscience at Princeton University. He has a master's in neuroscience from MIT, PhD from Princeton in neuroscience and psychology. Uh, he does not talk, to my knowledge, ever uh, about unicorns maybe being real or about you know Sasquatches and seeing them. Seems like a pretty reasonable, logical dude. And, and he does think we will someday be able to transfer human consciousness into digital form. He thinks, actually, it's, uh, to use his word, inevitable. Well, according to Graziano, the first person to grasp the information processing fundamentals of the brain was the great Spanish neuroscientist Santiago Ramon y Cajal, who won the 1906 Nobel Prize in Physiology. Well, before Cajal, uh, the brain was thought to be made of microscopic strands connected in a continuous net or reticulum. According to that theory, the brain was different from every other biological thing because it wasn't made of separate cells. Cajal used new methods of staining brain samples to discover that the brain did have separate cells, which he called neurons. The neurons had long, thin strands mixing together like spaghetti, dendrites, and axons that presumably uh, carried signals. But when he traced the strands carefully, he realized that one neuron did not grade into the other. Instead, neurons contact each other through microscopic gaps, through synapses. Well, Cajal guessed that the synapses must regulate the flow of signals from neuron to neuron. He developed the first vision of the brain as a device that processes information, channeling signals, and transforming inputs into outputs. That realization, the so-called neuron doctrine, is the foundational insight of neuroscience. The last hundred years have been dedicated more or less to working out the implications of that doctrine. Well, again, according to Michael, it's now possible to simulate networks of neurons on a microchip, and the simulations have extraordinary computing capabilities. And the rest of this explanation comes from an article Michael wrote for The Atlantic. He explains that the, that the principle of a uh, neural network is that it gains complexity by combining many simple elements. One neuron takes the signals from many other neurons. Each incoming signal passes over a synapse that either excites the receiving neuron or inhibits it. Well, the neuron's job is to sum up the many thousands of yeses and nos, you know, all these votes that it receives every instant and compute a simple decision. If the yes votes prevail, it triggers its own signal to send on to yet other neurons. If the no votes prevail, it remains silent. That basic computation, as simple as it sounds, can result in organized intelligence when compounded over enough neurons, thousands or millions connected in enough complexity. All right, let, let, me, let me break it down there now. M Michael uses a popcorn analogy to describe how the brain works at a neuron level. Now, imagine a large, unlimited, refill-sized bucket of movie popcorn. The bucket is your brain, and the individual popcorn kernels are neurons. And all the kernels look similar but not identical. And then, you know, they're eaten, and they behave in slightly different ways, and then some are not eaten. And then, you know, you pump some butter on the kernels, and the butter represents a connective tissue in between the neurons, right, the synapses. And then you add some salt. Now, the salt represents aging, represents corrosive elements. The salt weakens the connectivity between kernels. Does that make sense? 
All right, and then you shake up the popcorn, which gets connective butter, over more of the neuron popcorn kernels, which allows for better taste and greater thought complexity, but also gets a salt over everything, corroding more connections. And sometimes you get like flavored salt. You know, like sometimes you can get like cheese salt, and that causes a whole other set of issues, you know, especially if people are like, you know, have lactose problems. And then you put your hand in there and you grab some popcorn. And that hand represents me making all of this shit up. That was a terrible analogy that makes no sense at all that Michael never talked about. So let's get back to what he did talk about. I said we need to break this shit up because it's heavy. So the trick when it comes to creating artificial human-like intelligence is to get the right pattern of synaptic connections between neurons. Artificial neural networks are programmed to adjust their synapses through experience. You give the network a computing task and let it try over and over. Every time it gets closer to a good performance, you give it a reward signal or an error signal that updates its synapses. Based on a few simple learning rules, each synapse changes gradually in strength. Over time, the network shapes up until it can do the task, right? It's kind of like, like the learning curve, man. You know, at first it's so hard, but then your brain just gets conditioned to do it and it gets much easier. You don't have to think about it. That deep learning, as it's sometimes called, can result in machines that develop spooky human-like abilities such as face recognition and voice recognition. This technology is, is already around. It's, out, it's Siri, you know, and, uh, and Google work, uh, Alexa and that kind of stuff. You know, they learn. They, they, they learn through correct, you know, uh, responses, through incorrect responses, and they just get smarter just like we do. But, that, but can that technology be improved and refined to the point it could actually preserve a real person's consciousness on a computer, preserve their complexity, their memories, personality, hopes, desires, emotional temperament? Now, that is a much more complex task. The human brain has about 100 billion neurons, right? The connectional, uh, the, the connectional complexity is staggering. By some estimates, the content and connections in one human brain is equivalent to the entirety of all the content currently on the web, right? So one human brain equivalent to so much porn, so much porn. Uh, it's only a matter of time, though, however, but, you know, and, and not very much of that before computer scientists can simulate 100 billion neurons. There are uh, a variety of startups and organizations such as the Human Brain Project in Europe that are working right now full time and full tilt towards that goal. I mean, there are people, you know, that their lives right now are dedicated to figuring this shit out. The advent of quantum computing will speed up that process considerably. But even when we reach the threshold where we're able to create a network of 100 billion artificial neurons, how do we copy your special pattern of connectivity? No existing scanner can measure the pattern of connectivity amongst your neurons or connectome, as it's called. MRI machines, you know, currently scan at about a millimeter resolution, whereas synapses are only a few microns across. You know, uh, and I guess scientists, you know, uh, could kill you and cut your brain up into microscopically thin sections, and then they could, you know, try to trace a spaghetti tangle of dendrites, axons, and their synapses. But but even that, you know, kind of horrific uh, technology is not yet scales, you know, scalable. It's not possible quite yet. Scientists like Sebastian Sung have plotted the connectome in a small piece of mouse brain, you know, uh, but we are decades away at least from technology that could capture the connectome of the human brain. Assuming that one day scientists are able to scan your brain. And, and extract your complete, exact connectome, all of your connections, Michael believes the next hurdle is then going to be hit. In an artificial neural network, all the neurons are identical. They vary only in the strength of their synaptic interconnections. That regularity is a convenient engineering approach to building a machine. In the real brain, however, every neuron is different. Like, in my brain, I have 10% of the normal human's amount of, of pronunciation, you know, neurons which is why even basic uh, fifth-grade words like nuclear are virtually impossible for me to pronounce and infuriate others consistently. 
Uh, no, but to give a simple example, uh, some neurons have thick insulated cables that send information at a fast rate. You find these neurons in parts of the brain where timing is critical. Other neurons sprout thinner cables and transmit signals at a slower rate. Some neurons don't even fire off signals, right? They work by some kind of subtler, you know, sub-threshold change in electrical activity. You know, the brain uses hundreds of different kinds of synapses. And again, it's just and on and on and on. The point is the human brain is very, very, very complex, far surpassing the complexity of any existing technology out there in the realm of artificial intelligence. And due to this level of complexity, while creating a human-like robot with advanced human-like intelligence, that could be right around the corner. Some Westworld shit could be here soon. You know, we already have Sophia capturing human consciousness, specifically yours, probably not going to happen anytime soon. Michael doesn't think it's going to happen for at least 100 years. However, there is also the argument that we don't know what we don't know, you know, meaning someone could invent something unexpected tomorrow or in a year or five years that could drastically change the timeline, you know, for better or for worse, you know, and then once tech does make the transfer of consciousness possible, would digital you really be you or would your copy merely be a computer crunching number, you know, and, uh, you know, or a computer, excuse me, crunching numbers in imitation of your behavior, just some complex binary code based algorithm that that does, you know, what you would have done, uh, you know, alive. It's, it's alive in an AI way, but but not uh, really you. For lack of a better term, it doesn't have a soul. Well, apparently a half dozen major scientific theories of consciousness have been proposed, and in all of them, if you could simulate a brain on a computer, the simulation would be as conscious as you are. Uh, Michael explains that in one theory, the integrated information theory, consciousness is a side product of information. Any computing device that has sufficient density of information, even an artificial device, is conscious. I don't know. That sounds too cold to me. You know, it still doesn't feel like soul. You know, is that all we are? Some carbon-based computer with sufficient density of information? I, I, I hope not. I don't believe that to be true. But, you know, maybe that's my neurons just playing tricks on me, trying to convince me that I'm more important than I am. Uh, and then Michael brings up the point that we aren't just minds. You know, we have bodies, obviously, and the mind-body connection is a, you know, it's an important part of the human existence. So could a computer recreate a digital body to accompany uh, our human mind? Uh, well, the short answer to that is yes. It wouldn't be easy, but it wouldn't be as hard as recreating the mind. Basically, once we get the mind, if we get the mind, everything else is much easier. In Michael's lab, a few years ago, he and his team simulated a human arm. Uh, they included the bone structure, all the 50 or so muscles, the slow-twitch, fast-twitch muscle fibers, the tendons, viscosity, the forces, inertia. They even included the touch receptors, stretch receptors, pain receptors. They had a working human arm in digital format on a computer. It took a lot of computing power, and on our tiny machines, it couldn't run in real time. But with a little more computational firepower, a lot bigger research team, uh, he believes they could have simulated a complete human body in a realistic world. So these are Michael's thoughts on the subject. However, and full disclosure, he is a ventriloquist. So how seriously can we take him? Not, not even kidding about the ventriloquist part. I just, I just felt compelled to say this. I looked him up on YouTube where you can find some of his lectures, and he uses a puppet in many of them, which I feel like is important to note. You know, uh, I guess it makes, you know, some kind of sense considering his interest in replicating consciousness and artificial intelligence. You know, the old ventriloquist puppet, I guess, is the original replication, the original AI in a sense. You know, is it another person? Does it have autonomous consciousness? Is the puppet saying it on its own? Or is it a child's toy with the grown man's hand in his butthole? It's a uh, second, but you know, anyway. Uh, there's some startup companies working on this kind of stuff right now. You know, some scientific puppeteer isn't the only one really obsessed with the concept of human-engineered immortality. There are actually companies working right now towards the goal, as I said earlier, towards transferring consciousness. One company, Humai, it was a startup in 2015, you know, and it was working towards a transhumanistic temporary solution. And again, full disclosure, they went out of business, so, you know, and they weren't, you know, successful, but I feel like their vision is worth sharing. 
You know, and basically they had this this temporary solution to what we're talking about in today's episode, and they thought that while we wait to figure out how to inorganically replicate the human mind, you know, uh, why not try to figure out how to mechanically replicate everything else and then keep the brain alive infinitely through perpetual cloning? Basically, they they wanted to turn people into some version of Darth Vader or, or give people that option, or, or more accurately for Star Wars fans like General Grievous, you know, like like a robot, uh, you know, with with a few little human parts. You know, the human mind. According to their now defunct website, the goal was to, to was to use artificial intelligence and nanotechnology to store data of conversational styles, behavioral patterns, thought processes, and information about how your body functions from inside out. The data will be coded into multiple sensor technologies, which will be built into an artificial body robot with the brain of a deceased human. Using clone technology, we will restore the brain as it matures. Fucking bananas. Oh my god, man! If you could just like all you needed was your brain. Cause that's another thing. What if you just they could get nanobots to com- to continually you know refresh your brain and keep it alive, and then put it in just this this uh, this robot body? It's ah, uh, it's amazing that people are actually working on this stuff right now. It's sci-fi that's not you know necessarily fiction anymore. Like they're working on it. Uh, Google's chief futurist Ray Kurzweil thinks we'll be able to live forever. Kurzweil, excuse me. What a cool job title, by the way. That that's a real job title, chief futurist. I mean, how do you top that at a party? Oh, you're an architect. That's cool. That's great that you get to design homes and stuff. I'm a bit of a designer as well. Oh, what do I design? Uh, the future. Uh, I design the future. I'm a futurist. Uh, technically, I'm the chief futurist. Uh, who do I work for? Uh, Google. Yeah. Yeah, no, this shit's legit. Uh, I'm not the chief futurist of wackadoodle.crystal. Uh, anyway, Kurzweil, he's one of the biggest believers in the, in the singularity. The moment when humans, with the aid of technology, will supposedly live forever. And he thinks it's going to happen pretty soon. He thinks technology will be here by the year 2045. 2045. He's chosen the year 2045 because according to his calculations, the non-biological intelligence created in that year will reach a level that's a billion times more powerful than all human human intelligence today. And in a 2015 interview with Playboy, Ray said that, I believe we'll reach a point around 2029 when medical technologies will add one additional year every year to your life expectancy. Uh, By that, I don't mean life expectancy based on your birthday, but rather your remaining life expectancy. He predicts that nanomachines capable of taking over for our immune system to fix problems like cancerous cells and clogged arteries, connecting our brains to the cloud will be available by then. What the fuck? He likens that change as the next step in our evolution. The same way our ancestors developed uh, the frontal cortex two million years ago, uh, Kurtzwill uh, points to two advancements that have already happened to support his futuristic claims. The first is the rate of technological advancements I've been talking about. His, you know, he, he cites his current Android phone, you know, uh, is, that it's several orders of magnitude smaller and more powerful and less expensive than the eleven million dollar computer he used himself back at MIT in the mid '60s. And he thinks that technology will continue to just get smaller and more powerful and less expensive over time. Like that. Uh, it's yet to be seen if his, you know, if his plans are going to pan out. But Kurtzwell, you know, he, he considers uh, dying before the sing- singularity to be a failure on his part. So he's so invested in this. This 69-year-old has adopted a strict diet, like a vegan diet, in the hope of making it to 2045 and living forever. And again, he, he's not, you know, some dot crystal fucking wackadoodle. Uh, he's not a dummy. He, he received the 1999 National Medal of Technology and Innovation, the United States' highest honor in technology. Got a whole White House ceremony for it. Uh, PBS inducted him as, 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 or included him as one of their 16 revolutionaries who made America. 
as long along with other inventors of the past two centuries. So out of the past two centuries, he's one of the top 16 revolutionary inventors. Inc. Magazine ranked him number eight among the most fascinating entrepreneurs in the United States, called him Edison's rightful heir. Uh, Kurzweil was a principal invest, uh, inventor of the first charge coupled device flatbed scanner, the first omnifont optical character recognition device, uh, first print-to-speech reading machine for the blind. He obtained a, uh, a Bachelor of Science in Computer Science uh, and Literature in 1970 at MIT. 1960, uh, 1963, at only the age of 15, uh, when computers were in their very infancy, he wrote his first computer program. Uh, in 1965, he brought back the popular early 20th century American comic, Pootie and Juju. Uh, kids across America were now saying, once again, thanks to Kurt's wheel, put it in your lunchbox, Shirley. Park it in the shed. Too little, too diddle, Pootie. Uh, he wrote issue 64, actually, getting some satisfaction, where Pootie and Juju meet the Rolling Stones. Uh, that was the issue where Pootie tried marijuana for the first time, and Juju was super disappointed. Pootie said, you know, he, he'd try harder next time to say no, and Juju just said, too little, too diddle, Pootie. And then Juju uh, showed Pooty pictures of murderers, rapists, uh, homeless drug addicts, people committed to lunatic asylums the rest of their lives, other photos of people who tried marijuana, you know, just one time in order to scare him straight. And that was uh, – it's got to be my favorite issue of a comic that was never uh, ever printed. Anyway, what I was trying to get at is that Curse Wheel is no dummy, pretty brilliant man who firmly believes that digital immortality coming up quick. And again, the Pooty and Juju stuff, I, I, I got to make it clear for first-time listeners, that was nonsense. There's a fair amount of inside jokes now uh, in, in the suck. So that was just a reference to a couple episodes back. So I don't want somebody looking up like, what the fuck is Putin Jr.? But he's just one man. Uh, what does the rest of the world think about this? Uh, what do, you know, uh, I don't know, the idiots of the internet think about digital immortality? Idiots of the internet. Well, since we were just talking about Ray Kurzweil, I decided to dig into the, the comment section under one of his speeches about what we've just been discussing. I found one titled uh, Ray Kurzweil, Immortality by 2045, Global Future 2045 Congress. Uh, it was you know, a speech given in 2013. And, of course, there are a lot of comments from religious people who think it's wrong to be exploring what they consider to be the domain of God and God alone, immortality. And that's to be expected, and that's fair. I understand that, you know, religious reasoning behind that viewpoint, and and I don't think it's fair to lump, uh, you know, that belief into the the internet section at all, because it's natural for faith to depart from logic, you know? You know, if you believe that only God has the right to grant an afterlife, well, then that's that's your right to believe that. Other users, though, go off the rails in ways I consider preposterous and unacceptable, like user Bezbog, a true fucking idiot, uh, and Bezbog writes, LOL, he's such a Jew, smiley face emoticon. 99% 99% of what he's speaking about is just general knowledge, so I don't understand what makes him so important as a person who just summarizes knowledge from various fields. What's his expertise? What's, what's your expertise, Bezbog, being an anti-Semitic dumb shit? I love when random users question the authority of, of the most brilliant minds in the world today, like the most brilliant minds in the scientific community. Fuck, fucking dumb people. Dumb people who don't realize how dumb they are, which seems to be most dumb people. And, and they're the worst kind of dumb people. Their lack of self-awareness is just aggravating. You know, just arrogant ignorance is the worst. And I don't get it because I, I've always been painfully self-aware. Uh, now, I've also always had a, above average intelligence, you know, and I'm, I'm being cocky. Uh, I have the test course all throughout my schooling to support that claim. However, I'm also never the smartest person in the room, right? I recognize people who are more intelligent than myself, and there's a lot of those people out there, so many. Uh, I def- a lot of you listeners, <laughs> I definitely recognize and respect specialized knowledge as well. Like if someone has gone to school for 10 years and studied, for example, I don't know, nanotechnology, uh, 
and then worked in the field for another 20 years, I'm going to assume strongly that they know a shit ton more than I do about nanotechnology uh, and about tech in general, especially since I'm the guy who literally screams at his laptop and phone several times a week for not working right when, in fact, they are working right, and I'm just not smart enough to figure that out as quickly as I want to. <sighs> user uh, user Segui goes with a less articulate approach when, when it comes to attacking Ray, simply writing, Ray Kurzweil is a freaking, all caps, moron. Uh, no, Segui's not. He's a very intelligent person. You're, you're just choosing to be uh, too ignorant to understand that. Uh, you can disagree with him. Uh, you know, if you want your replacement word using freaking dumb shoot. Uh, but, but why, why bother to even leave a comment like that? Oh, I, oh, I know. Cause the web has given your dumbass a voice and you feel perpetually obligated to use it. Go watch some fucking cartoons or something. Get, get off of this video. You, you should be excited about the prospect of digital immortality. If there's a chance that the human mind can be digitally transferred by 2045, then scientists can probably figure out how to copy your subhuman cave dweller brain by, I don't know, an hour from now. Um, Okay. User, user, this is this is one of my favorite comments I found in a while. Found a good one this week. Uh, user T- Tommy's baked leaves uh, my favorite comment in uh, easily a, a, of 2018. He asks very simply, "Will everyone have a chance to be part of immortality?" I fucking love this. I know it probably doesn't seem that funny at first. I just love it because I love he asks this as if digital immortality is a definitely happening, b definitely happening soon, and c. That the comment section of this video is where you find out if you're going to be included in the eventual transfer. And then another user, uh, Kevin Bond, just answers him, just posts, Yes, Thomas, I can make everybody immortal right now by my discovery. The greatest one in millions of years of humankind on Earth. Love this Kevin dude. So much sarcasm in his reply, all of which is completely missed by Tommy's Baked. Tommy's Baked actually just replies with, uh, Oh, Fuck, I maybe he is is actually baked. God, ease up on the weed, brother. I hope he's being serious. I really hope he's being he's being serious because I just picture someone out there who he's just found out that humans are going to be made immortal, you know. And he just he's not he doesn't question if it's possible or not. He's just worried that you know is he going to make the cut? And he just you know so he's he's asking the comment section, you know, like like he must have been on pins and needles waiting to get an answer back from Kevin. You know, just oh god, I hope I get in. Please let me get in. I want to be immortal. Please. And then he gets a YouTube notification, you know, just pops up on his, you know, on his computer and he's oh, oh and he checks it. Oh, yes. Oh, thank God, man. I was I was nervous. Uh, oh, okay. Thank God we're in. Well, I don't know if he's he feels as good now cuz I felt compelled to also reply to, to Tommy. I almost never reply on these uh these <laughs> the internet comments. But it just I was I was giddy reading his comment and I wrote back, Hey Tommy, I just got back from a meeting with the Council of Immortality and your name was brought up. <sighs> Sadly, you didn't make the cut. So sorry. Uh, you don't get to be part of the scientific community's immortality program, but you can also try and just figure out how to live forever on your own. Rooting for you, smiley face. Yep, I uh, haven't heard back yet from Tommy. Uh, I'm sure the news came as quite a shock. He's probably, you know, it's going to be a tough couple of days. And, you know, I, I believe, I, I think he'll pull his shit back together. But right now I'm sure he's bummed. It's like, oh, Kevin lied to me. Oh, I don't get to, uh, I don't know, Mom. Now the, they had the Immortal Conference. We don't get to go. He's probably very, very shocked. I, I, I have a feeling news in general uh, shocks you when you are an idiot of the Internet. Idiots of the Internet.
Okay. So, well, you know, it turns out we know quite a bit uh, about the brain, but we have oh so much more to discover, right, before digital immortality can, can possibly be grasped. That's what I've learned on uh, the research for today's episode, you know, whatever the timeline ends up being, whether or not consciousness can ever be figured out, uh, you know, if it can be figured out to be transferred, I do think it's pretty amazing that it's just being discussed and that it's being actually researched by high-ranking, respected members of the scientific community. You know, it's not some easily dismissed wackadoodle concept, which I think it could have been, what, 10 years ago, 20 years ago for sure. You know, the implications almost endless for what this could mean for the human race. You know, it sends my mind to so many interesting places. If we can be digitally replicated, so can our entire world. Think about that, right? Here's an interesting thought about post-humanist uh, possibilities. By the time the scientific community can figure out how to digitally replicate a human mind you know, and a human body, if it can do so, you know, they'll definitely have already mastered replicating simpler life forms, such as like plants, the rest of the animal kingdom, the inorganic world. So, you know, like by the time you could theoretically be digitally replicated, so could the rest of the world. Like how fucking intense is that concept? You know, Earth could be re- recreated digitally. You know, in addition to your loved ones also being replicated, you, you could have your pets replicated. You know, I could bring Penny Pooperton around. You know, she would feel as alive as I would. Uh, but here's the thought that freaks me out about Let, Let's say all that can happen. Well, if you can be replicated once, couldn't you be replicated infinitely? And, and this comes again from me kind of watching the, you know, the uh, Black Mirror, uh, just thinking about some of their themes. You know, and, and in that case, you know, wouldn't each version of you be equally alive, equally conscious? You know, couldn't a, couldn't a hacker just really fuck your whole world up, you know? Somewhat literally, maybe put you in a world with a billion clones of yourself? That's a weird thought. I have no interest in hanging out with even one more of me. The possibilities are endless that way, you know? What if, what if they put you in a world full of a billion of your enemies? Put you in a world with a billion Bojangles! So many one-eyed, three-legged ass-kicking wonder dogs running around. A world clearly created by Nimrod. Finally, you could see Nimrod in his giant, chupacabra-headed Sasquatch. Sons, you know, for, for eyes having, unicorn-riding, galaxy-sized glory. You know, maybe maybe you could put it. Uh, you could be put in a world with a billion Michael Motherfucking McDonald's. You know, billion Triple M's constantly serenading you with yacht rock majesticness. Taking it to the streets, 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 taking it to the streets. Is that what heaven is? Or is that most definitely hell? Guessing hell, you decide. And we wouldn't be limited to this world if that would happen, you know? We could replicate human consciousness. We could also design self-repairing machines. Think about this. Machines that could mine for metals, materials needed to rebuild themselves. Machines that could perpetually repair and replace their own circuitry. Power themselves with solar energy or something not even discovered yet. Couple that machine with the ability to fly, refuel itself... Find and locate fuel sources, create fuel, put an immortal human inside of it to travel, and you have the potential for endless space exploration. Sounds incredible to me, but, you know, would you want to be part of this world if it was possible? You know, would a world free from disease, death, and inequality be heaven? Or would it be an exercise in boredom and an inevitable hell? You know, it feels like if that becomes a real possibility, designers need to engineer a suicide switch for all of us. But then what if someone deactivates that suicide switch? Just, ah, there's so many fucking things to think about. Is our existence not partially embedded in our own struggles? Do they not define us and give our, give our life meaning? You know, what about the soul? What, what would, uh, you know, this discovery do to religion? Personally, I feel like this concept can coexist with the existence of a higher creative power. You know, just because we can possibly figure out how to extend our lives even infinitely doesn't mean to me that God didn't give us that life initially. You know, they also give us the intellectual ability to figure out how to cheat our, you know, our earthly deaths. 
You know, but what if there really truly is a soul that can be, you know, it can't be seen and therefore can't be digitally mapped? You know, if that's true, then this experiment, while it will eventually fail to perfectly transfer human consciousness into a digital form, won't it eventually prove the existence of a true soul, you know, and thus some kind of higher power? You know, how cool is that? It sounds like a win-win to me. Either we can figure it out or we realize we can't figure it out because there's things truly beyond our comprehension. Uh, all right, I, I could I could wax philosophic for days on this shit. Could a but you know a little bit little bit more. Could a digital consciousness have digital children? How crazy is that? Would they be alive as as we are? Would would the drive for everyone to create a digitally perfect version of themselves erase their own individuality? We just end up with some you know part of some homogenized clone like culture where everyone is perfectly handsome, perfectly beautiful, and the most intelligent you can possibly be, which means that no one is exceptional. How long would men's wieners be in this utopia? Six inches? Sixteen? Sixty? Would you have a tail dick if you could design it? How big would your vagina be, ladies? Would you have a tiny, teeny tiny, barely any labia to speak of a J? Or would you have a giant Venus flytrap kind of a JJ? So many important questions we could ponder, but there's no time for that right now. It's time for top five takeaways. Time suck. Top five takeaways. Number one, 2045. That's the year at least one post-humanist researcher thinks we'll be able to begin exploring digital immortality for real, for reals. That's only 27 years away. Uh, that is so very close. And he also believes that by 2029, 11 years away, transhumanist advances in bio and biotech will begin dramatically extending our current life expectancies. So my dream may come true. I may end up as a robot. I hope I get to be a cool one like Schwarzenegger and Terminator. You know, in that franchise, and not some shitty one like R2-D2. Number two, Michael Graziano, another very intelligent person despite his penchant for ventriloquism, also believes the human mind can be fully mapped and replicated and broken down into binary code. Can we really be simplified to a series of ones and zeros? Aren't we so much more than that? Or do we just have brains that convince us we're more than that? So we work harder to breed and protect our young. Or are we just another animal, just one that is painfully aware of its own mortality and invents both religion and science to feel like there's a chance we won't die after all? Number three, scientists have already figured out how to turn one human cell, such as a brain cell, into an entirely different type of cell, such as a skin cell. Are we really uh, close right now to becoming cyborgs? You know, not immortal, but a huge step in that direction. Number four. Hundred years ago, the thought of a robotic hand was almost inconceivable. It was laughable. Now, reality. Think about what could be possible 100 years from now. Number five, new info. When I think of the future merging of, uh, of tech and the natural world, I think of cyborgs. But there's uh, another genre of human tech hybrid, the inverse of that, currently being developed biohybrids, robots enhanced with living tissue. Is what? Yeah, a group led by Barry Trimmer of Tufts University, a co-author of the Science Robotics paper, has developed worm-like biohybrid robots that move via the contraction of insect muscle cells. Do you fucking hear what I'm saying? He has little worm robots that they've enhanced with insect muscle cells to improve their movement. They put muscle cells on robot. Now, there are limits to what these biohybrid robots can achieve, though, because, you know, living cells need to be nourished, which means that for now, these robots, you know, tend to be short-lived because they can't eat. You know, the, the tissue. Uh, but how, how long, you know, is it until we clear that hurdle? And that, you know, clearing that hurdle is currently being explored. Man, Frankenstein shit happening now. Terminator, Skynet stuff. We are truly entering strange days. Strange days, indeed. Time suck. Top five takeaways. Digital immortality has been sucked. 
Look forward to updates on this one for sure, man. Wow. Uh, Houston, Dallas, Brea, Cleveland, Charlotte, Atlanta, Huntsville. I'm pretty sure Birmingham, if my memory serves correct. Many more dates up at dancummins.tv. Spokane. Got a live time suck coming up. Uh, check out those dates. Snatch up some tickets, man. The more stand-up tickets I can sell, the more markets I can return to with the live time suck shows. Got to prove to these venues that you guys are going to show up. Click the link in today's podcast description. Uh, you know, to listen also to my new album, Maybe I'm the Problem on Pandora Premium for free. And if you can't get to work, I am sorry, uh, but please do not contact me letting me know that just because I can't help you. Uh, I know some of you guys have reached out and I just send back basically messages saying like, I don't, I don't know. You're gonna have to contact Pandora's customer support. I'm sure that's frustrating, but that's all I can do. And, and, and again, you know, 90 days, it'll be on iTunes and everywhere else. So, you know, you'll be able to get it eventually in a way that works for you. But right now, uh, for almost everybody, it's been working great. Uh, you they just click the link. You know, they, you, you get free 30 minutes, uh, free 30 minute trial of Pandora Premium. If you're already a Pandora Premium uh, user, it works fucking perfect. Uh, and then when the time's up, if you're not, you know, you just come back, click the link again. You get enough time to finish the album uh, for free. Yeah, my wife did it. She, she's not, uh, uh, you know, very techie, but she pulled it off. Uh, be sure you've updated your your Pandora app to the latest version, and it does only work on Pandora's mobile platform, not on the desktop version, just so you don't have an exercise in frustration. And again, you know, it'll be everywhere else later. Uh, the Patreon account is live for those of you who want to sign up early to become a space lizard. Thanks to those of you who already have done so. Uh, due to my tour schedule, I recorded this episode last Tuesday, so I have no idea how many space lizards are out there right now, but I'm guessing it's between 900 and 1,000. It's been fucking nuts. It's a thing now. And if some aspect of your space lizard account is functioning correctly, uh, or I'm sorry, incorrectly, you know, uh, please check your Patreon emails. Check the Patreon site or email the app designers at timesuckapp at bitelixer.co. And that'll be on the episode description, by the way, that, that email, timesuckapp at bitelixer.co. Uh, yeah, that link does also work on the timesuck app. So you can just go right there to, to email them. And, and again, I'm going to pu- be putting up, uh, you know, posts and stuff on Patreon for people to be able to see who have signed up to explain uh, problems that come up, solutions for those, and how to do everything. Uh, and again, it's $5 a month to be a Space Lizard access, uh, you know, and to access Space Lizard features on the app that should be up right now, uh, should be up on the website right now. If they're not working by the time you're listening to this, I am freaking the fuck out. I am in a hospital. Uh, I've had a nervous breakdown. Uh, <laughs> but I, so I hope Future Me is not freaked out. I hope it's all working great. should be. I have a lot of faith in the Bitelixer guys. Uh, so the Age of the Space Lizard is here, man. Password for the 20% merch discount. Access to the Space Lizard merch also on Patreon. Going to be on the post there. Uh, if you haven't, you know, check your emails. And, and again, that link to all of that to the patreon.com slash time suck podcast. It's, uh, it's, it's on the episode description. Um, yeah, it's a link to your world, uh, the exclusive world of being a Space Lizard. Uh, and you can only listen to the secret suck on the app and on the website, only those places. Uh, yes. Uh, okay. So that's that. Thanks to Sydney Shives, Harmony Velikamp, Jesse Dobner, and the entire time suck team, uh, you know, Maddie Teeter and, uh, and everyone working right now on, uh, you know, Deanna Marino, all the, all the time suck projects. Thanks for all the reviews, spread the suck. Each review helps every time. And you guys write the most wonderful things. You know, I pissed a few people off here and there. I got called a communist and socialist on... <laughs> It was the most ridiculous iTunes reviews. One star for uh, I, I'm, a, I'm a socialist. I'm a communist. I'm a puppet of the left, which I love. I love when people call me like part of the Hollywood elite. Like I literally have no famous Hollywood friends. Like none. Like literally none. Um, not any. <laughs> and uh, and I've never. If you've listened to anything like I make fucking fun of communism like vehemently, constantly. I don't know. 
eh, I don't know where people get their fucking ideas, but they hear some word that triggers them and they and they they're not a fan. But but the rest of you, the overwhelming majority, say the nicest things, and and you're very very kind to me, despite all my flubs and stuff. You see how hard we work on this thing, and you enjoy it. And I appreciate it, and you let people know, and that helps so much. So from the bottom of my heart, thank you. Next week on Time Suck, uh, I promise we'll have a serial killer soon. But for next week, Ireland, the IRA. Right, The Irish Republican Army. I've been fascinated with them since I was a teen, man. Once in my early 20s, I saw an Irish man get tossed out of a pub in England, in London, and he was screaming, IRA, motherfucker, boom, boom. Guessing the boom, boom uh, referenced IRA bombs that have gone off historically in England. Uh, so is the IRA like a legit revolutionary group trying to free its uh, Northern Ireland from British rule, have the entire island of Ireland you know, all be Irish rule? Or is it a terrorist group, a political group, both, all three? Uh you know, uh, do they do they sell arms to California biker gangs like they did on Sons of Anarchy, or is that just some silly Hollywood bullshit? Are they still alive today? You don't hear about much of them lately. Not over here in the states. Is there is there still a lot going on? In 1979, uh, the IRA assassinated Queen Elizabeth uh, II's uncle, Lord Montbatten, and three others by blowing up his boat. They've done a lot of uh, other uh, terroristic uh, terroristic type activities. But again, you know, some people will be very insulted to hear them referred to as terrorists and say they're just freedom fighters. So what the fuck are they? What have, what have they done? Why have they done it? We're going to the Irish Isle next Monday on Time Suck, and I, and I couldn't be more ready. And now it's time for some Time Sucker updates. Updates. Get your time, sucker updates. First, an update on last week's African episode. It comes in from Cody Petkus. Uh, Greetings, Suckmaster. In the recent episode on Africa, you talked about how the Egyptian pyramids were built by slaves. This is actually a myth, mostly perpetuated by Hollywood and mis- misinterpretations in the Bible. The general consensus of Egyptologists is actually that they were built by a blue-collar workforce where they lived difficult lives of hard labor and they were not slaves. Thanks and hail Nimrod, your loyal suck servant, Cody. P.S. Here are some links to credible sources on the subject. Thank you, Cody. Hail Nimrod indeed. Uh, yes, got a few updates on this on this one. Uh, Cody's links are included in the episode PDF in the app, by the way, if you want to check them out. And, and according to the links from National Geographic, Harvard, and U.S. News that Cody sent, yes, it was a blue-collar workforce that built the pyramids. Uh, I guess that's what I get for assuming. I, I so strongly assume that slaves did build the pyramids. I didn't properly fact check it. However, I also include a link to another article that says, wait a minute, basically. Um, are we sure, right, that that, uh, that they were blue-collar workers, all of them? You know, are we sure it wasn't a mix of blue-collar, skilled designers, and some form of slave? Now, remember, an indentured servant is still a slave. They have to work. They can't say no. Also, many pyramids were built over many, many years, so is there also the possibility that slaves may have helped on some and not other pyramids? Uh, Regardless uh, of what you find, at the very least, I fucked up by not bringing up the legitimate modern research pointing that, that, you know, at least some of the pyramids uh, do appear by, you know, the Egyptologists of the day to not have been built by slaves. And so for that, again, I apologize. Uh, Second update comes in from Guy Green. It's regarding a previous Flat Earth update about a man named Mike Hughes. 61-year-old former limo driver, homemade rocket builder, an utter maniac. Now, uh, <laughs> here's what guy writes. Suckmaster, hear this. As promised, I'm updating you on a Flat Earth Madman Mike, or Flat Earther Madman Mike. Today, his RV launch platform was gone from the spot it had occupied in the parking lot of Roy's Cafe in Amboy since his last aborted launch attempt and move and dropping and breaking out of his rocket. It's now back together and freshly repainted, and he's planning to launch this coming Saturday. I forgot to ask what time, though. Well, the man himself told me I couldn't hang out. This is awesome. 
the guy has actually talked to this guy. This is fucking great. Well, the man himself told me I couldn't hang out owing to Facebook death threats and every visitor taking up 15 minutes of his time. There were a couple of guys shooting a video who asked if I'd comment or uh, give a comment or two, and so I did. Again, I failed to ask whether it was their own document uh, documentary or a YouTube segment or what, but it doesn't matter. The important thing is, is that I happen to be rocking my time suck hat. Yes! Fist, eye, and time traveler? Illuminati? Zigni? Yeah, it's the, uh, it's the third eye. Yeah, absolutely. Um... Almost equally important, I, I didn't say anything too stupid or fucked up while wearing it on camera. Oh, man, I love the award, man. Thank you for rocking the suck. Uh, and then he says, except maybe the part about how I actually want this nuclear war with North Korea, but they probably won't use that, right? Anyway, there's your Flat Earth update, and since I did say that thing about wanting a nuclear uh, nuclear uh, annihilation while representing the suck, I won't bust your balls by telling you that the president is the only one who calls Namibia Nambia. Ah, fuck. Sorry. Let me buy you a microbrewer single malt sometime. Man, damn it. Did I, did I fucking say uh, Nambia uh, instead of Namib- Namibia? Namibia? I probably did. My fucking mush mouth. Ah, damn it. Uh, well, I found a Washington Post article. Thank you, guy, for all that about this flight and added the link to this episode's PDF as well. And by the way, a lot of grammatical errors in the PDF. Again, it's just notes. I just do want to say that. Uh, Mike reports uh, that – and misspellings and stuff that I don't correct just because I'm just using it to, uh, to convey information. And Mike reports that if uh, he does see a curve um, you know, on the earth after his rocket launch, he'll accept that the earth is round. You know, it sounds like he'll then focus on mole people or some, some weird shit, uh, some people living underground because he doesn't believe that scientists know anything about what's under the Earth's surface. Now, he talked about that a lot in this, in this Washington Post article. So I feel like he's building this thing where, you know, if he doesn't get what he wants from the flight, if he can pull it off, then he's going to focus on talking about what's in the ground supposedly. Probably he's going to die during the rocket launch if he does go up. I feel like that's a strong possibility. If he goes through with it, which I doubt he will, but maybe. Maybe we'll have more updates on this guy's launch. Uh, and then we have Sherry Cortez and a whole bunch of others uh, who sent in some pronunciation updates, of course. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, Sherry wrote, oh, you precious little thing, trying your pronunciations. Ah. First, uh, long word, long word is pronounced ostra lo pith e e cus. Ostra lo pithicus. Ostra lo pithicus. So that was one, ostra lo pithicus. And then the other one, the other big word, afarensis. Australopithecus afarensis, and then uh, papyrus, right? And she put papyrus, like Russia without the second S in Sia. So papyrus. Okay, I hope this helps. I hope it did too. I hope I got it right. You let me know, Sherry, if I fucking finally got it. If I can't get it with all of that help, you couldn't have broke it down more simply. Then, like I said earlier, I just don't have the brain connections to pull it off. So, and I do love your patronizing tone. I feel like it was well-deserved. Uh, it keeps me humble. <laughs> so thank you for spelling that out as phonetically as possible as if you were writing uh, a six-year-old child. Um, finally, very nice email from Cody Vesley. Uh, what's up, Suckmaster? And I did like the previous ones, by the way. Uh, what's up, Suckmaster? Flex, Big Daddy Suck. Old Dirty Suck Master. I've been listening to your stand-up for a while now. How else uh, would I know that you possess a doctorate in unicorns? You're damn right I do. About three weeks ago, I was searching the interwebs to see if you had a new special out, and I stumbled upon Time Suck. I just want to share how this beautiful podcast has saved my marriage. About a year ago, I was coming home early from work and decided rather than call my wife, I was going to surprise her. As I walked into the house, I could feel something was wrong. My bedroom door was closed, and I heard my wife giggling from the bedroom. Oh, God. I knew immediately what was going on. I kicked down the door, and I saw my wife taking it from behind by my next-door neighbor who had just moved in, who was none other than Bo Jangles, the one-eyed, three-legged, huge dick dog getting to her while my wife screamed, while my wife screamed, Hail Lucifina! Seeing that devil dog and my wife damn near killed me. Rather than get a divorce, I decided to give counseling a try, and after almost a year, it seemed like nothing was going to save us. That's when we found your podcast, and now we snuggle up and relax as we both slowly get sucked. 
No, I'm obviously kidding. My wife has never cheated on me, and we have a happy marriage. My wife is an avid sword and scale podcast listener, and I convinced her to get sucked, and now she considers herself to be a future space lizard. We would love a shout-out to Sage and Cody as our five-year wedding anniversary is on February 9th. We love the podcast. Look forward to sucking the fuck out of your time, uh, out of you time and time again. Hail Nimrod. P.S. Can't wait to see you when you come to the Tempe Improv down there in Phoenix in April. We will be in attendance with our Time Suck t-shirts on. Well, shout out done, Cody. That was a great story, man. I love that you did a Bojangles misdirect story, and you really did have me going. Uh, for a while there, I was like, oh, shit. Uh, I love it. I love it's coming back, man. I love the fan fiction. Happy anniversary, you beautiful mother sucker, you. Glad you and your wife are on your way to space lizardry. Hail Nimrod. Thanks, time suckers. I needed that. We all did. Well, that's it for today, time suckers. Talk to you space lizards on Thursday. Thanks for bearing with me while I figure all this out. Touring way less in February, specifically so I can be home to get the secret suck and all the space lizard stuff up and running smoothly. Now get out there and map some brains. Take us to the robot level or next level of evolution or digital playground. Some Take us somewhere and keep on sucking. <laughs> Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. If you suddenly had an extra hour show up in your day every day, what would you do with it? Work out, sleep, read a book, play Fortnite, call your mom, take judo lessons, finally watch all the episodes of Shameless. A lot of us spend a lot of our time wishing we had more time. But why? Time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? The bad news is that you're not going to get that 25th hour. But... What you can probably do is reprioritize where you spend some of your time. Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it with your time. This year, my health is more important to me than cranking out another stand-up special as fast as possible. So I canceled a tour, sacrificed that income, and decided to spend a lot of the time I just got back working out more, resting more, relaxing more, and enjoying time with family, friends, and just myself. And I'm so glad I did. I feel better than I have in a long time. And my BetterHelp therapist, Debbie, was very helpful in getting me to make the decision to pull back. Thank you, Debbie. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash TimeSuck today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash time suck.